Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Elixir Fountain. I'm your host, Johnny Wynn, and we are back with news and interviews from around the Elixir community. Have you signed up for the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation yet? You should. The Erlang Ecosystems Foundation's goal is to grow and support a diverse community around the Beam ecosystem by encouraging continued development of technologies and open source projects based on and around its runtime and languages. Find out more at erlef.org. That's E-R-L-E-F.org. Today, I'm pleased to have with me two very special guests uh, from the Erlang community, Tristan Slaughter and Fred Heber. Greetings, you two. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And last time, it's going to be again, I'm sure. (laughs) So much for the pleasantries. We'll move on. Well, uh, I know we had we had Fred on the show before, but uh, th- I guess there's some kind of news. You two are working together like full time now, right? For the second time, yes. For the second time, nice. Uh, do you want to give a shout out to the company or no? Keep it super secret. No, oh, yeah, we're both at uh, Postmates now. Awesome. Yes, I, I actually uh, I'm glad you did because I love the service. I use it quite a bit. <laughs> I live in California, so it's nice to have a little late night food delivery sometimes. You know, I wanted to have you all on the show because you've both been in the Erlang community for so long. You've kind of seen how the community's evolved over time, uh, you know, with the rise of Elixir and things like that. Just kind of want to get your perspective on like how things have changed. Like what was it like when you first got involved in the community? What was the community like for those that weren't around? When I first started trying to take any part in the community, it was just the mailing list. And while it had a good bit of traffic, uh, didn't the community had a had a long ways to grow in uh, being able to really bring on newcomers and uh, have materials and uh, tutorials ready for people. There was you know the OTP docs, which are can be quite dry and confusing, and uh, the conferences were. But the nice thing was uh, going to the conference, uh, Erlang Factory back then, uh, very small. You could meet everybody. You could meet Joe, talk to him, talk to Richard. And that's one nice thing is what is kind of, there's a lot more conferences, but they're still nice, small, and intimate. Talk to Richard. O'Keefe? O'Keefe. Oh, yeah. He was around. No, I didn't. No. <laughs> I meant birding. Oh, very Robert. Robert. Yeah. <laughs> What's funny is you you said Richard, and I'm like, wait, wait, wait who? <laughs> but yeah, well, Richard O'Keefe was around too a lot. No, he doesn't go. He doesn't show up at anything. <laughs> well, no, I thought he did. Like in the early days, Richard O'Keefe was more involved. It's possible I think he might have shown up in conferences more than ten years ago because I've never seen him there. Uh, but he would definitely show up to arguments on the mailing list. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Richard O'Keefe, I think, uh, I mean, yeah, he's been around the community. He wrote the uh, the craft of prologue, right? Which was a you know prologue. Most people know that, like you know, Erlang has kind of origins in some prologue stuff. So, yeah, no, he's a brilliant technical author. And every time someone would argue about something, like no other languages does that, he could name like forty of them that you never <laughs> that all did that thing, and for twenty years before you were born. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny, over the last like year or two, we've moved a couple of times, actually, I guess three years. And I keep paring down my books because I have so many things on, um, you know, eBooks now. And there's a couple of books, Fred, you'll, you'll be happy to know that your book uh, is still on the, on the shelf. And uh, uh, um, 
and O'Keefe's book is as well, The Craft of Prologue. Um, so definitely great books, a lot of great information. Um, now, I know I've heard you talk about this before, Fred, like the learning experience. Uh, yeah, like Tristan, you mentioned the, the docs. Like, how did you learn Erlang? I, I know it wasn't from reading the docs. That's for damn straight. For me, it was kind of reading the docs. I mean, you had the books. Uh, Joe's book was out uh, in 2001, uh, which is where I think the community grew the most. Uh, Erlang was open sourced in 1998. There was a book in 1996, which you were lucky to get your hands on for a long time. I think they've got a new printing now, and it's an interesting historical artifact. I don't think you can still get it. That's actually the book I started on was... Uh the original Erlang book, where it doesn't even cover OTP. The anonymous functions were tuples. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not, that's not a joke. They, you had like the function name and a list of arguments, and uh, VM knew that when you had that kind of call mechanism that represented an anonymous function, the syntax for it was just added later. Um, and uh, I learned in good part through the docs as well, because you know, you've got the principles, what are the underlying things that guide the uh, language design and usage and everything. But then knowing the standard library and all the really amazing stuff that's in there, uh, I did that by just opening the uh, reference manual documentation and reading through every page one after the other. And then eventually you remember what's in there. And that's how you figure out that, oh, you've got promises or futures, but they are in the RPC module. I'll get to that, all that kind of stuff. And so that ended up um, helping a whole lot because sometimes you're wondering how a feature is written. And if it is in the standard library, but you don't know where it is, you don't know how to look into the implementation, right? And so that did help the digging. But back then, it was Joe's book, which barely covered OTP. And then um, what was the guy's name? Uh, Yariv's blog post. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, one guy who used to work on, I can't even remember which project, but he made like quick blog posts explaining how to use a gen server and how to use gen event and how to use supervisors. And that was it. Like there was a bunch of blog posts that people would link and then you had to kind of piece it together on your own after that. And there was uh, Hashimoto at that time was actually doing a uh, blog post, creating like a, a, a bank service uh, showing gen servers and supervisors and stuff oh, right. before he switched to uh, go with uh, All the everything at Hashi, at Hashi Court. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting because back then as well, uh, you didn't really have a huge presence for GitHub. Uh, you had Google code a bit. And uh, mostly if you wanted to install dependencies, you downloaded a zip file and you put it somewhere in your file system and that was it. <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> and it worked every time out of the box, right? Right. And the first rebar version by uh, Dizzy Smith from Basho came out in 2009. And that was, he was tired of using make files with that stuff. And that was like the first version of something where you could put a link to a source code somewhere and it would download it for you in your project. Before then, it was just all ad hoc. It was just, if you wanted to have your library, you put it in directory somewhere, you just wrangle paths. And it works. And if someone else wants to install it, they have to read the entire guidelines and copy the files on their own system as well. And, uh, you know, that had a huge impact into uh, how Erlang developed as a community. It used to be only in big business environments, which already have their build tools and the people maintaining that. And it was a lot harder for a hobbyist to get into it because you didn't, you needed a kind of corporate support to make it less painful. I remember hearing stories about like, um, 
you know, the way a lot of people learned Erlang, like production Erlang was they got a job doing Erlang before they even really knew it. And then the companies that they worked for because of the way the tooling was, because of the way uh, the documentation was and the accessibility to it and things like that, it was, it was more you got the job doing Erlang, maybe coming from another language, and then the company taught you how to use their tooling and how to use, how to use Erlang the way that they're using it. Yeah, but frankly, this is still like a very common way to do it. There's plenty of jobs for people wanting to do Erlang. There's plenty of people wanting to do Erlang, but who can't find a job. And usually it's just a question of geography. And a lot of companies that are using Erlang need to have one or two people who know it more and you train everyone else. And it's not a very complex language. You're able to get into the patterns in a couple of weeks without too much of a problem as long as you have some guidance provided to you. And um, in my previous job before joining Postmates, that's what we did. We trained about eight to 10 Erlang developers and within less than a month, they were able to participate into the corporate projects that we had. It still goes on that way. And I think that's a healthy attitude you have. Uh, being willing to train people is usually a sign of a good environment in which to work. Going back and now thinking about like, I remember the, it was, this was back before Codebeam when it was still the um, Erlang User Conference and Erlang Factory. I remember the first uh, Erlang Factory that had an Elixir track. I was there, Dave Thomas had spoke, Jose had spoke. It, it was literally like, it felt like the only Elixir people there were the people speaking in the Elixir track. <laughs> I think that's when I first met you too, Tristan. Um, and uh, but I, I remember the the uh, the talk towards the end. It was like kind of the closing keynote where, you know, Dave Thomas had kind of gotten up there and being like, "Look, if you want Erling to go on, if you want Erling to grow, if you still want to have a job in a few years, we, we need to open this up. We need to make this more accessible." And I remember that talk and I remember the, the, the reaction from the Erlang community. A lot of the people that were sitting in the audience were like, well, I think everything's fine. You know, it's kind of like the, the dog sitting there in the room on fire. Everything's fine. But then I feel like that was the, the starting point of the change. But I, I, I want to say it was either that year or the next year. Fred, you gave a talk at Erlang User Conference in Sweden and the message was, no, really, seriously, we need to change. We need to, we need to help our docs. We need to help our tooling. We need to really commit. We really need to help grow the community. To me, that was the shift that I saw in the community. It's like the, the first one kind of got the fire started and then you kind of showed the way, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, I mean, there were other things going on. I think the first conference was a bit of a weird one, uh, essentially because Elixir had its own conferences already. Erlang has its own conferences already. And um, Elixir has and had uh, much more of a grassroots movement on these kinds of things, right? Where people were starting user groups left and right. Erlang has always been extremely guided by Erlang solutions to organize a conference. And we have that kind of, uh, I would say, learn helplessness where you go there and other people already take care of all that stuff. And the feeling back then was uh, they already got their own conferences. Why can't we keep having ours for stuff like I don't feel about going to all the talks about Phoenix all the time um, and, I still and, don't and, feel like going to talks about Phoenix no this <laughs> is great and it's not a knock on Phoenix it's like but I don't need another intro to Phoenix talk seriously right I mean that's how you you build a program in the entire thing but that that was the kind of weird adaption adaptation about it and back then 
uh, the way Elixir grew the most was not necessarily by bringing people from Ruby. It was actively trying to get people from Erlang and marketing itself as a better, uh, as a better Erlang. And if you didn't really like all the decisions of Elixir, it felt like a very personal slight. Uh, but since then, I think there's been a huge shift in the overall industry. There's different competition for languages like Go uh, for some of the same mindshare that exists. And uh, at some point, uh, folks in the Elixir community changed their approach as well. Uh, the, one of my favorite examples was that a lot of Elixir packages back then were just Erlang packages that were being wrapped without giving credits, for example. And so you would see your library, no credits, and then it's super popular in Elixir and nobody knew that you wrote it. That was kind of insulting. Um, and uh, the shift happened in both communities. I think Elixir readjusted themselves into, uh, you know, being a bit more uh, cooperative with the Erlang stuff. Erlang folks started seeing it as more of an asset to have. And frankly, from my personal point of view, for example, uh, I still prefer Erlang to Elixir. But if I have to choose between Elixir and other languages, then I do prefer to have Elixir. And I think that kind of acceptance was a bit broader in the community and saying, like, look, we're a lot similar than we're different. And there's a lot more benefits to working with each other than there is to competing and fighting among each other when you see other languages be making leaps and bounds right next to us. Well, I think that's one thing that I've, I've really enjoyed watching kind of over the last several years is, is how the community has decided to grow as a whole. And to tell you the truth, I think, you know, and this is my personal opinion, but honestly seeing like Elixir Conf as like, you know, this major conf, like to me, I would much rather see the major conf as beam conf or something like that to where it incorporates everything about the beam and, and then have smaller regional conferences that maybe are more specific take, you know, um, you know, there's a, a, of course, there's a ton of now regional conferences for uh, Elixir, but it'd be nice to see. And well, and I, I shouldn't, I need to qualify that with now there's a, there's more regional Erlang conferences when you talk about like the, the code beam lights and things like that, which are great where you're getting more exposure to where you have the one conference that like brings everybody together uh, on the beam. And then you have the smaller individual that can be more specific to like certain technologies and certain, certain aspects, you know, because I mean, really it is a community as a whole. Yeah, and it shifted, and it was interesting when you invited me to speak at Elixir Days, for example, a couple of years ago, and I was, I think, the only Erlang person there, but it was great to get to know all the folks around that area, uh, the different kinds of concerns, and then when we went to the BeamConf a couple of months later, then I would recognize all these people, and it, it, would, uh, it kind of undid the clique, I guess, that I would hang with the same people at the same conference all the time, but changing a bit of that, you get that cross-pollination, and then over time, it does create that better unity between both communities. Like, it's about getting to know all the social circles and getting them to blend a bit. Well, I get the question a lot, like, um, you know, when, with people new to Elixir, uh, you know, they're like, well, should I learn Erlang? Should I learn, you know, Elixir first or Erlang first or what have you? And I, re I remember back at, when I first found Elixir, you know, the, the source code for the standard library was really small. And to, to your point, most functions were really just wrappers around our Erlang calls. <laughs> so to really figure out what was going on, you almost had to learn Erlang. And it's, and it's getting different now. I won't say better or worse. It's just different. Like you, you can go into Elixir and maybe not necessarily touch Erlang itself, but it, 
I think it helps, but I think it's less than what it used to be. Uh, which, for good or bad, I think that the, the you know the, the languages are both kind of emerging. What I'm really liking uh, is Jose came out and said, for all intents and purposes, Elixir is done, and really trying to point people back to Erlang. You know, say, look, go see what you can help with the OTP t- team. But one thing that's come up, and I've heard this as well, and I'd like to get y'all's input on it. There's been a lot of pushback on the Erlang side on the OTP team when Elixir developers come in with potential solutions or potential um, some of the feedback that I'm getting. And do you have any ideas about like how we could you know ease that or you know or you know maybe maybe it's a learning thing maybe um, I don't know and this is just things that I've heard people ask me you know ask me about. Interesting because I don't think there is that much pushback. Uh, At least I wouldn't say it's Elixir specific, right? Uh, There are a lot of contributions that make it into uh, the more Coraline stuff uh, coming from them. I think Mehal Moskala is just keeping like patching all the stuff all the time and it all gets in. Uh, The thing that I think Elixir folk maybe don't have as a context is uh, how conservative the Erlang project is as a whole. Like something like Dirty Schedulers. Uh, was in the works by Basho and Steven Noski, and it took them something like four or five years to get in. Um, they are extremely careful about what they merge. It needs to have um, the right rationale is for everything. And, uh, you know, that, that's been a huge part of uh, getting that in there. And so I wouldn't say that there's a pushback because it's Elixir. Uh, there's a pushback because they are extremely careful as a whole. Yeah, I'm curious what, like, some of those features that they feel are getting pushed back on because I see well, I mean one of the great advantages of having a large elixir community is the amount of work a number of them do in OTP and the uh, optimizations especially that they they get added in uh, I was surprised uh, yeah yeah I mean for me it, it always looked like business is normal as usual and I had this uh, e49 proposal to get bits of syntax in there and it was turned down and I, I'm one of the long-standing well-known people in the community and there's no way you just get to push something in because of your status like you have to explain your change get them in and whatnot and uh, E48 which was about adding new chunks for the documentation that chose it was true went through mine didn't um, I don't think that if there is a pushback is because it's from the elixir community uh, one interesting thing that happened as well was uh, when they were doing compiler optimization phases with the new uh, SSA, I think, um, they had a bunch of Elixir examples in there to generate the code and whatnot. And I went through uh, some people of the uh, OTP team and asked them, like, is this because there's a shift at Ericsson that they're using more Elixir and whatnot? And they said, no, we're not really using it, but those are use cases that we have to support. And they provide interesting uh, inputs that we don't get otherwise. And so what I've seen from them is that they have started using test cases and adding Elixir to how they stress test the virtual machine, even though they don't use it. And for me, that was a sign of, you know, good cooperation from my point of view. But it's just, I have to conjugate that with their corporate agenda. I, I think that's the key. And that's probably what people are facing is, you know, you write something, you're like, oh, this should totally be in there. And they're like, um, no. I mean, I think the argument always goes back with like, what should be in the standard lib versus what should be a library that's, uh, you know, one of the things that used to come up all the time, I think it's been kind of quieted now, is like uh, Elixir support for JSON. Oh, yeah. And things like that. It's like, well, just because you think it should be there doesn't mean the project as a whole 
thinks it should be there or like it i mean i'm i'm one of those that say you know no json parsing shouldn't be a part of the standard lib that's not something that should be in that should be a library that's on top of it and i, I kind of wonder if that's a lot of the the really where that's coming from is it's like well i think it should be there and it's like well but the team that's supporting it doesn't necessarily think so uh, and that one is a super interesting case because we've had that debate in the airline community like eight years ago yeah. Don't worry, we'll have it again in like four or five. Right. And so, so, but that's part of it, right? You have that discussion and the language is 30 years old. And so you have that perspective that the implementation and interface that we choose has to be valid for another, another 20 years. And most people, I think, don't think on that kind of time scale. Uh, first of all, and the second one is that if you're coming from the Elixir community, you don't have the background that you've got these debates 20 years ago and eight years ago, that the answer is going to come fast and looked extremely rough, but this has been discussed for years at length already. And so the conclusion has been kind of adopted, but not communicated because it happened before Elixir even came to be. Right. Well, it happened probably before most people that are using Erlang today were involved. I mean, when you're talking about a decision that was made 20 years ago and, you know, as a developer, we get so kind of caught up sometime and I need this today, but you don't real you don't think about the ramifications of I now, once this goes in, it now lives forever one way or another. It's like, yeah, there's, I know that there's parts of OTP that, um, yeah, diameter, which was something that was like put in a long time ago that nobody uses. It, that one is kind of new, uh, yeah, relatively. They used to have the uh, Corba stuff in there that they had to take out. Yeah, Corba finally came out. Yeah, and they had as well uh, one of them that was other telco stuff, but Diameter is kind of new by comparison. It's an old-ass mm -hmm. protocol, but it's a new implementation that they have. Uh, but yeah, they had old stuff, and it took them years to be able to deprecate them properly and get them out of whatever they had. Megaco is probably the one oh, thinking yeah, about. Yeah, it's amazing. Also, it, it's kind of weird. Uh, contradiction because very conservative about what goes in but there's also there's so much in there <laughs> that people don't even know about i was talking to uh, jose only like uh, uh, a month ago and uh about sshing into uh and connecting to an erlang node and i was like oh yeah you can actually just do that with the ssh application turn that on on your erlang node and connect directly to it and he, he was like, I had no idea that was in there. Right, you can SSH directly into the shell, not, yeah. not even in the host. It serves SSH directly into the shell, and you're able, you're able to do that, no problem. It's, supported, it's been supported for a decade. <laughs> well, I think that's the thing. When you're talking about a language that's that old, uh, and I do remember uh, talking to Joe one time, and uh, he was saying something about, like, you know, learning Erlang itself, you can do in about, you know, 24 to 48 hours. Learning OTP can take you years. <laughs> you know, so there is so much stuff in it. And, and a lot of it depends on like what you're doing with the languages, whether or not you'll ever even encounter some of the things that you could possibly do with it. Right. I mean, another complexity there is that learning the language is learning the base semantics. Learning OTP is learning to structure systems, and those are different skill sets, right? And learning a language is kind of easy, but learning how to compose all the building blocks in a way that makes sense is always more challenging. And you get that when you um, even just do, I don't know, Python has this idea of writing Pythonic code. You, know, you don't want your code to look like Java written in Python. And doing that takes a longer period of time, and we're not even talking about system structure. 
And so it's easy to learn Erlang and then get to contribute to a project, but starting from scratch and structuring it in, a, in the right way uh, is a lot harder. And it's been weird to do it in the community because the community had to learn how to do it without having access to all the internal stuff at Ericsson. I do want to talk, uh, you guys have had a, a big impact on the, uh, the, the tooling for Erlang with rebar and things like that. What has that process been like? And like, you know, because it rebar three is pretty, what if I'm wrong and tell me I'm wrong, wasn't it a pretty much a rewrite? Mostly. Yeah. The, some of the core stuff, the stuff around uh, the actual compilation uh, stayed the same at first, and the like the entrance, like the start of the E script, remained the same. But uh, pretty much everything else, yeah, uh, was a rewrite. And that was we originally it kind of started because at Heroku trying to onboard people to learn Erlang, and Rebar Two was a major pain point there. Yeah. <laughs> had a lot of things like how it processed uh, builds was not uh, repeatable and you had like magic incantations that you knew if you wanted to run the test that way you had to switch in these arguments and call the commands in the right order and it didn't necessarily make a lot of sense and people had a lot of frustration there and wanted to wrap that up into something that was straightforward instead. And deterministic. Yeah. And at the same time there was Erlang.mk coming out and I didn't want uh, people to have to maintain make files all the time to do all of that stuff. Like for me, that was a thing I didn't want to happen. Uh, I do sometimes work on Windows as well and make files were painful and it felt like the wrong direction. And so all of that happening at the same time, uh, it made sense to decide to start maintaining a build tool of our own, which is usually a terrible decision, but <laughs> <laughs> we had to, it felt like we had to do it essentially. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's interesting to see how, like, I, I've noticed that things like Rebar 3, like, addressing the tooling uh, in Erlang seems to have come a long way, like, you know, just in the last several years. Um, and, you know, going back to your talk, like, hey, we need, to, we need to take a look at these things and how can we make them better? How can we make them easier to use? And so, you know, that kind of brings me around to uh, the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation and both, both you are on teams, on the uh, working group teams. Uh, tooling was one of them, uh, but you know, tell everybody like which teams y'all are on or which groups y'all are in. Uh, myself, the uh, the build and packaging working group and the observability working group. You're a manager of both of them. Yeah, man chair, manager, whatever they call it. Oh, great! So we get to hit you up with all our problems. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm on the board of the foundation. Uh, I'm on the build and packaging as well. Uh, I think I am on the documentation one. And I believe uh, there is one in uh, training and adoption. And I have a seat on that one as well. But for a lot of these, I think, um, aside from building and packaging, is that I can participate in meetings and give my opinion, but I don't necessarily have the time to do the heavy lifting on these anymore. Uh, but yeah, like build and packaging is the main working group along with just being a board member for the foundation. Have you seen a change, I should say, uh, in the community since the founding of the, I know it's only been a few months now, but uh, like with these working groups coming around, have you seen kind of a change in the community and the way contributions are coming in and, you know, the benefits of the working groups? I'd say there's definitely been benefits in bringing the Erlang and Elixir people closer together in sort of a, a structured environment. Uh, we had been getting better working between uh, the two sides 
recently anyway, but the foundation has sort of uh, solidified it into direct channels that we're communicating through on things like uh, the hex package manager and things like that. You had interesting effects in the observability working group as well. Yeah, I mean, with the, the telemetry project uh, the, that first came out as an Elixir library, and then uh, we re rewrote it at Erlang. Uh, actually, that comes back to the the wrapper uh, issue from before, is Jose was very adamant that there would not be uh, an Elixir-specific API on top of the telemetry Erlang library. Like, he did not want that to happen. I was all ready to you know, add it in, <laughs> and he did not want that because he was pushing for this more uh, integrated approach. Yeah, Josie has been a great figure in unifying communities at the same time, and we brought in him. We brought him in very early on with the foundation once it was an official effort and everything, and he's been he's been a major force in bringing both communities together. Uh, I often give the perspective of Erlang, but Jose has been doing a great, great job there. Well, and I think that, you know, it, it's really evident, it was Jose, like his respect for Erlang and respect for the community and things like that. And, um, you know, I think if there are rumblings, I think it's people that don't understand that, that it's not a one or the other. It's a community that works together uh, to make both better. I believe uh, that. That's the spirit of it, yes. Yeah. So and it's I, I'm actually part of the working groups as well and really enjoy like the way that the community is coming together. And I, I've always been a big fan. I, and to me, to to Elixir developers out there that haven't been to an Erlang specific or conference or, you know, one of the major ones like Codebeam or um, uh, Codebeam in Stockholm with it used to be the user conference uh, I highly recommend going just to meet people that are doing other things with the technology to, to see what's happening in Erlang for one, cause you might run into something that you need that there's already a library for you don't need. And you know, you don't need to rewrite an Elixir version. You can call right into Erlang. It's, it's that easy. And so leveraging each other's abilities, I think is, is awesome. And that's really how we're going to make this community grow and, and sustain really honestly, even growth, to me, growth and sustainability go hand in hand. If you don't, if you're not bringing new people into the community, if you're not, you know, propagating ideas within the community, you can't sustain that community for any length of time. Yeah, I mean, at that point, after that, you're about discussing like the rate of growth, but you need some amount of growth that's mandatory. Well, and I and I've noticed that there's a lot more businesses uh, that are being more vocal about their use of Erlang and Elixir, which is good. That's 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 showing signs, you know, for the. For the longest time, to your point, like there's a lot of companies that were using Erlang that weren't mentioning it. I think somebody even said like they'll say they're using Java. <laughs> and I was like, no, you're not. Um, but it, uh, you know, yeah. there's something about uh, I've done a bit of contract work teaching Erlang in the past, and there are companies that just have you sign contracts telling you you can't say that you work for us. This is a competitive advantage. And uh, I started hearing the same things happening uh, on the Elixir side of things uh, more recently. Uh, but it's a super interesting aspect because it, it looks like a kind of joke from the outside. Like, oh, yeah, there you have all these top secrets, girlfriends in Canada or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's how it sounds. But that, that's how it turns out to be. And a lot of them are just like we're training the people. They don't participate in any of the communities. And, um, or they participate in very hidden ways if they do. 
but they are around and they are there. And it's, yeah, it, it's a bit of a weird thing. It's uh, very much of an iceberg of a community where you have, a, I don't know, about 50 to 100 very visible people. And then there are thousands and thousands you've never heard about, but still use the code and still push some of it or otherwise entirely work in corporate environments. And I think the Elixir community brought in a much, a very different form of community because they, they're coming from other languages mostly. And the Erlang community for so long had had that hidden, were used in the corporation but not sharing with the community aspect to it. And that made libraries and dependency management just not very hard to get to catch on. Well, yeah, and I remember seeing that back, like when I first got involved in development, it was about almost 20 years ago now. And you know, maybe it was just the companies that I was working with at the time, but a lot of it was they wanted to develop things in house, even things like, you know, ORMs types type things like they would write their own. And so the only people that knew how to use that particular ORM were people that worked at that company. Um, and there was no, you know, to, to watch like the open source community kind of bloom over the last you know 20 years has been great. And, you know, it's not, I think one thing that people need to, to consider when, when we talk open source and we talk about these working groups is even as, you know, the, the, yes, it's free to use, but, you know, it, it costs somebody some time. You know, I, I see one of the things that, that drives me nuts when I look at like an open source project is somebody, you know, getting on and I need it to do this. You need to make it this. What? <laughs> PR may be accepted. <laughs> right. there, there's a bit of a crisis in open source maintainership right now because uh, you've seen the opposite of what it was 20 years ago, which is a bunch of companies who rely on it and will never contribute back on the same point, but still have the expectations as if it were contract work uh, that they were paying for. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's highly reminiscent if you know any designers of working for exposure, right? You should feel grateful that we're using your stuff. It's great for exposure, but you know what? People die of exposure. So, <laughs> so it, it's a bit of the risk uh, that's going on on there. And we're also on a kind of verge of the, I, I don't want to say a crisis, but it is a difficult time. Um, and I think we kind of feel it in terms of build tools from that point of view, where a lot of people have demands, don't give you access to everything. Um, and it's not as bad as it was because I think people, at least in Erlang and even the Elixir community, when they do file bug reports with us, are more and more conscious of that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was a time uh, where understandable frustrations were there when people were migrating from different tools, having issues, and you know they, they have to express that frustration in some way, but you end up being the one or two people always on the receiving end. Mm -hmm. and, and that would get extremely tiring, especially if you do it all in your free time. Um, the foundation has been interesting from that point of view because it gives you that kind of, you know, community feeling that even if you're two or three people doing most of the maintainership, you have that entire structure around you uh, that brings in support, roadmaps, the kind of communication channel, and also lets people who want to get involved a way to do it uh, in a more uh, explicit or available manner. And so that's been positive. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's a bit weird how it flipped over from we don't want open source into if it's not open and free, then it's not worth doing at all. Right. Or it's not worth using. We're not going to write anything. We're <laughs> everything that's out there. It's like the berry pickers of the programming world. 
it has to be somewhere in the bush. I'm not going to grow anything myself. Well, so with that in mind, uh, kind of taking a look at like where, well, I got two questions for you. The first one is, where would you see the biggest need for contributions right now, especially within the, your two working groups? Like where, where would you like to see help come from? Like what are, what, uh, is there particular issues? Is there, you know, whether or not it is to go back to the OTP bug list and, you know, look at issues there or particular tooling or, you know, with rebar, does rebar need help? Uh, where would you see the biggest benefit that somebody that wants to help, that wants to contribute? Where would where should they look? For rebar, it's kind of tricky because it's getting to a point where it's kind of stable. Uh, what we need usually is when there is a bug report, it's to get an easy way to reproduce it. Because all I, I think most of the easy bugs at this point have been rooted out, and we're now playing in the field of really weird edge cases that require specific code with, uh, you know, uh, specific environments to which we don't have access. And one of the big use cases we're not supporting well right now, for example, is going to be monorepos. And those are tricky to do because monorepos are usually behind a big corporation where they have huge BL2s and specific needs to which you have zero access. Uh, and so from that point of view, we have a kind of need to get corporations willing to improve their tooling, reach out to us and make some things available to us. Uh, on the other side, we are playing a whole lot with the foundation specifically uh, in improving the uh, integration with Elixir code bases. And so from that point of view, what we need there is more users, people in the airline community willing to have Elixir dependencies report what has been going on on there um, and participate from that point of view. And then, yeah, we need more people to try using Elixir stuff, bringing it back, seeing how the documentation works because the documentation working group is also trying to unify uh, the experience around the documentation in both languages. And so... Yeah, we need more early adopters of Erlang people using Elixir depths, and we need more old adopters in large corporate environment making things a bit more available to us. I think those would be uh, two big needs we have right now. The rest of it is stable enough that I think we can do a decent job of sometimes getting around with it. Yeah, I mean, I, a big future work for Rebar 3 and Relx, the oh, release yeah. build, builder that... Uh, Rebar 3 integrates with instead of a rel tool like Rebar 2 did is trying to simplify and integrate those in, into a, a, something that's even not necessarily going to be part of the OTP uh, repo, but uh, small enough and integrated enough that it can be uh, maybe part of like the install bundle and uh, not come in with as many dependencies and things like that. Right, because this is one of the things that we have with the dependencies is all these different licenses make it a bit harder for us to bundle in with OTP and whatnot. Uh, and Relic still needs to have uh, get some more compatibility with Rel tool. But I, uh, yeah, another thing is, like Fred was mentioning, with these companies that aren't using any of the community build tools often, or they are, but in a very uh, different ways and they kind of uh, hack it all together uh, w with getting the feedback of if they're they're using rel tool how are they using it what needs to be done for them to move to relics uh, a lot of that information isn't available right now yeah and I love the idea of actually start using Erlang libraries 
like if you need something, search for the Erlang library that does the thing because there's you know a wealth of libraries out there that have been written over you know the last several decades that are available to you. You don't necessarily have to use an Elixir package, and that's going to kind of do that twofold of a you're going to kind of learn more about Erlang because you're going to have to read through what the the library is doing and things like that and how more hopefully more experienced Erlangers wrote. <laughs> I mean, there's still a possibility you're going to find a library that was written by somebody that didn't have any experience, but hopefully you get like a good sense for like how things should work. And, and, and it's a great learning opportunity. And one interesting thing that I think I see more in the Elixir community than the airline community is the idea that if a uh, repo hasn't seen a commit in like six months, it's dead. Whereas I think the airline community has had a long time focus with OTP applications and making one app that does something kind of simple. And it's very frequent that I'm looking for something. It is a six-year-old library, no commit since then, but it works perfectly. Mm -hmm. and so that might be a kind of shift in perspective that's needed a bit. Um, if you have a very well, narrowly defined project, it doesn't need to be recent to work well. I heard, I saw, this was a few years ago, uh, the issues list in, I want to say it was in Elixir, if I'm remembering correctly, was actually pretty small. It was only like a handful of issues. And somebody had actually asked if the, the, the language was dead because there weren't a lot of issues. It's like, um, <laughs> wait, so the number of issues something has means that it's, that it's, that it's active? <laughs> no, it's just there's not a lot of issues in it. So It's, it's less of a problem now, but those old uh, library, Erlang libraries that work fine uh, for a long time weren't published the hex uh, and oh, yeah. that's still there's still cases that that needs to, to be done but it's gotten a good bit better yeah another thing that I would encourage the Erl the Erlang community to do is that when they publish to hex there's a little command called hex docs that pushes the documentation to hex docs so it can be read by people there um, we should probably make that uh, mix does it as a default yeah mix does it as a default and rebar three splits as a two comments because the documentation does not always build right but if you know you have documentation it would be probably a great gesture to make your libraries more visible to elixir folks because for them going to hex docs is a it, it's automatic whereas yeah. our folks are used to digging into the readmes and stuff like that uh, but that might be an interesting thing to do and change and adjust which is to push for writing the right edoc stuff, pushing it to hex docs and making it available. This will tell you how old I am. I still go to the readme first. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's and the readme doesn't give me everything that I need, then I go to the hex doc. <laughs> Usually the way I start is I look at the config file, what's the app file in there, and I just dig into the supervision tree because I, yeah. I go straight to the source, but yeah, I can't get everyone to do it. I go right to what functions does it export. All right. So that was great. Uh, I think a lot of good information on how people can get uh, caught up in the community and help contribute back uh, to both Elixir and Erlang, I think is, is great. Um, but uh, I have to say it's uh, a time in the show where we give everybody what they want, which is the five behind the code. Uh, <clears throat> I know, uh, Fred, you said you might have to drop off, so we're, we're going to try to get through these so that uh, I, I can get your answers. I know you've done this before, so we'll default to Tristan as the, being the first answer. Uh, Fred, I'm sure you can contribute as much as you like. Are you ready for this? All right. Um, Tristan, you're, you're kind of 
political sometimes. And so I thought that we would uh, start with a very political question and see how this goes. Um, Emacs or Vim? (laughs) (laughs) I don't usually, (laughs) I was about to say, I don't usually ask uh, technical questions, but I figured that was a fun political one to see what side you're on. I have a thing for uh, bearded uh, wise men, so Emacs. Nice. Fred? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Vim on that one. Yes. Can we start a fight? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for me, it's mostly about the model editing and being uh, softer on the wrists, essentially. And that's what drove me to Vim and all the other editors that support that kind of keyboard shortcuts. Well, so I used to use Vim uh, quite a bit um, exclusively. And then I switched over to Space Max, um, which, you know, is like Emacs Lite, I guess. Um, But... uh, I still find myself using VI a lot, which is nice. I'm glad I spent the time learning them. And so the, cause VI is always available. Emacs is not always available. That's the only thing that I will say in its, and uh, in support. So one of the big problems with them is that it's so great that few people know how to quit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I know how to do. In the- <laughs> you, you just close the terminal window, right? <laughs> um, so okay, well, we'll get a little little less testy, and we'll say, what w- what's your favorite band or musical artist? Uh, mine would be uh, Propagandy. Nice, friend. God, I don't know. There's a lot of them. Uh, these days, I would probably have to say King Crimson. I'm still a whole lot into prog rock stuff. Nice. I I find myself going back like. Uh, you know, I'll listen to, uh, you know, I've got a 12 year old daughter and I've got a nine year old son. And of course I got a ton of teenagers. And so I find myself keeping up with what is quote unquote popular, um, which some of it's just awful. Huh? You're big into Billy Eilish right now. Uh, actually, you know, I kind of do like, Billy. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. <laughs> Well, if you, oh yeah, you might not. Uh, it's, but she's really popular right now, especially with the kids. That's what the kids are listening to. Um, but, uh, but I still go back. I, I have to say, my son, who's nine, I, I really like his musical taste. His favorite band is Black Sabbath, and <laughs> we're gonna go see the Iron Maiden show that's coming to LA um, in the, uh, I think in September. So that'll be his first concert is Iron Maiden. Um, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, because few of them would compare with that positively. Exactly. <laughs> well, he loves the whole Eddie thing. Um, and so, and they do the big stage show where the Eddie comes out and stuff like that. And so, yeah, he's going to be pretty stoked about it. Um, Starting with something worse, that is going to be less expensive and all the next experiences are going to be better as well. <laughs> well, so we went to, a, so we, when we were in Denver, he picked up on baseball and started going to like, we were going to baseball games. But I mean, a lot of the times we get tickets, like we went to a 4th of July game, which he absolutely loved, but we were literally on the top of the, the stadium. I mean, we're like, we could turn around and we're looking out into the parking lot. That's how high up we were. Our first Angels game that we went to, we were sitting in the suites and we were like on field level and like could reach out through the fence and like grab the batters if we wanted to. We were that close that we're warming up and pretty much ruined every experience at a baseball game. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm sorry, I can't live up to this all the time. Um, so, all right. 
This one actually came up earlier today for us. We were talking about 80s TV shows, and I know that you might not be big into 80s TV shows. So I figured what I would do is I'd ask, what was your favorite TV show from childhood? Simpsons. Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Simpsons was my favorite from high school. So, <laughs> uh, I was born in 88. Oh, wow. 85, so I started watching it when I was four. <laughs> nice, yeah. Well, I used to have a VHS tapes where I would record the episodes so I could watch them all the time. And so I, I, I had like, it's funny, for years I kept them until like, you know, they, I, just, I didn't even have a v, uh, VHS player anymore, but I'd still keep them. And finally, my wife was like, why do we have these? <laughs> it's, that's what is great about The Simpsons is that they're still on air. Yeah, right. true. There's like 20 seasons that are not necessarily worth watching anymore, but you can still get the old ones from time to time. I think there's a lot of good ones still coming out. <laughs> yeah, it's still, it's still worth a watch. All right, so we, we talked TV. What's, what's the most recent book you've read? Uh, <laughs> my, the uh, Black Marxism. Nice. <laughs> it's a sort of a dissertation in history of radical black thought. Okay, nice. Brad? Um, I've just finished Caves of Steel by Asimov, which is an old classic I had never read, and I'm almost done with uh, Cadillac Desert, which is about uh, the entire development of irrigation and water uh, handling in the U.S., but specifically in the West. And it's one of these weird books that, you know, what the hell is that shit? But everyone recommends because it's absolutely amazing and depressing and frustrating all at the same time, and it's... Uh, Oh, it's a great book. So now I know that, you know, the Midwest and the West is pretty much dying very soon, just running out of water. But it's great. <laughs> it, it, it's, a great it's not great that it's dying, but it's a great book, right? <laughs> it's a great book, yes. And you can just go through the entire policies of the last 200 years of water management, and it's mind-blowing how terrible it is. But, yeah, it, it's, a, it's fascinating as a read. I, I really, really enjoy that book. I was just reading an article about, like, the, the timelines for Las Vegas losing uh, or like they're running out of water at a pace that like but their people are still going there and it's becoming more expensive and they don't they just don't have the water to sustain and at some point in the very near future they're going to run out and people are going to have a mass exodus from it uh, but i mean you're talking about a desert town right but essentially i mean a large part of southern california is the same and then there are multiple states colorado is in that state most of the midwest is in that state and so that's what the book is about. It's just not like Nevada, uh, just Las Vegas as a city is like the worst example, but almost half of the continental United States is in that situation right now. It just doesn't look like it. Uh, but it, yeah, it, it's a great read. I do recommend that you do read the book. <laughs> All right. So since we're talking about uh, change in the world, what would be your superpower? Um, I mean, there are a lot of things to fix and change in the world. Uh, <laughs> I feel like the most urgent one uh, that I feel is going to be the hardest to fix with the shortest timelines at this point is climate change. Um, and it happens that we are in the middle of pretty terrible patterns right now. So being able to do anything about that could probably be interesting at this point. So you could like Superman could stop a hurricane. <laughs> no, probably you could go and travel in time with enough data to convince people to do stuff 30 years ago. 
<laughs> I mean, Superman did go back in time. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? If he, he's got the lung capacity to blow the storm away. So he's <laughs> kind uh, of a boring superhero because he doesn't have enough actual weaknesses. It's like, he's too nice. And if you find the right rock, it's kind of weak. Yeah. <laughs> Have a better personal flaw. It's like the superhero from the 30s, where like being good at everything was kind of an attribute of its own. He's boring in that kind of way. Uh, he's more of an anti-hero these days, I feel. <laughs> I think it's funny. Like when I watch like superhero movies, I mean, I'm a huge like comic book fan growing up and stuff like that, and like you know, but it's like you watch, especially the movies, the most small, simple thing will throw them off, but then they'll do something crazy like. Um, there was actually a scene uh, in um, one of the movies where the uh, the superhero first comes and like destroys these massive ships, like flying through them, just busting them up and everything like that, and then lands. And then they're they're like, "Well, how are we going to get through these people?" And uh, we'll help. She doesn't need any help. She can do it all her damn self. <laughs> she just busted up the massive ship. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's funny to see how these sort of things uh, with the superheroes, it's like they can do this massive great thing, but then like sometimes like the littlest thing trips them up. So you're always vulnerable when you're in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> just ask Elvis. Um, so I think that's it. I think we made it through all five questions. You two did awesome. All right. Well, that's it then. Sweet. Awesome. Well, it was great having you all on the show. Um, and we'll look forward to seeing you all in the conferences. If anybody's out there, feel free to go out and, and, and try an Erlang conference if you haven't been. Or, you know, make sure you get out to one of the Elixir conferences. Uh, there's tons of folks that are, that are great out there that, uh, that love to share in the community. So, thanks, y'all. The first dose is free. The first dose is free. Yes, always. <laughs>